Hello, and welcome to Something Shakespeare This Way Comes, a podcast where we're always willing to complicate things just because we feel like it. This episode, I'm going to finish talking about genre as it applies to Shakespeare's plays, specifically tragedies and histories. If you haven't listened to the last episode, I'd recommend starting there because I offer some framework for why the question of genre is more complicated than you'd think and how the first folio set us up for these long-lasting debates. I also looked into what constitutes a comedy and at what point those comedies start to tip into a different genre altogether. What we have to consider when looking at the genres that Shakespeare was writing in were theatrical convention and history that he was pulling on and how he was pushing those boundaries or messing with what might have been expected to a 16th century audience. On top of that, it's important to keep in mind that what might have been fairly straightforward in his time causes more issues for us hundreds of years later. I'm sure almost everyone who's listening to this has experienced that feeling of returning to a movie or a TV show as an adult that you really loved when you were a little kid, and that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're realizing that it did not age well. Well, if something from the 1990s now feels dated, just think about something that was written in the 1590s and how much more context has changed in that amount of time than something that you were actually alive for. Tragedy is interesting because it's one of those genre categories that seems super easy to identify at the outset. The popular cultural conception of a Shakespearean tragedy is a play where everyone dies at the end. And listen, this idea is not entirely incorrect, especially if we're looking at mm, Hamlet, for example, but it still doesn't provide us the full picture. So if we think of the traditional definition of a comedy as going from chaos to order, then tragedy is the opposite of that, where you start in a state of order and then it devolves into death and chaos. Where characters in a comedy might enjoy a last-minute intervention that leads to that happy ending that might not have otherwise happened, In a tragedy, characters don't receive that intervention, or someone attempts to deliver the intervention, but the characters misinterpret it or miss it or or something goes awry. So if we take Romeo and Juliet as our example, I like this as an example of something where the last minute intervention doesn't work. And that's because there are a lot of attempts at intervention in Romeo and Juliet that go completely awry. We have... Friar Lawrence trying to put Juliet to sleep and send a message to Romeo. Romeo doesn't get the message. Then Friar Lawrence tries to show up to spirit uh, Juliet away to take her to Romeo. Romeo gets there first. He shows up before Juliet dies. Juliet dies anyway. So there's a lot happening there where the last minute intervention is very messy and does not work. But one of the kind of interesting things about Romeo and Juliet is that this idea of order to chaos or death leading to failure and chaos isn't really quite the case in Romeo and Juliet. So that play does end with the death of the protagonists, and they do fail at their ultimate goal, which is to be together. However, the goal of the goal, I guess, the outcome of their marriage was supposed to be peace between their families, and their deaths 
do lead to peace between their families. Also, if we think about that plot structure, the play does start in chaos, not in order. The Capulets and Montagues feud has plunged Verona into just complete chaos. The prince, none of the authorities can keep it under control. And their death, through leading to their family's reconciliation, then leads to order in Verona. Another example of a tragedy that sort of challenges this conception is Macbeth. So Macbeth also, I think, starts in chaos to a degree because it's the end of a war. A thane has just been killed for Macbeth to take over. There's the chaos of the battle going on. And we should also keep in mind Macbeth commits his first murder in Act 1. So, I mean, that chaos really kicks off super early on. And then at the end of the play... When Macbeth dies, we have that order promised because Duncan's heir is now going to be taking control of Scotland and peace and order will be restored. One lens of looking at tragedies in the 16th and 17th centuries is through the types of plays that came before it. So we're talking here medieval religious drama. Medieval religious drama were plays that were didactic in nature and were attempting to teach audiences a very clear lesson, and not in a subtle way either. You would have characters on stage named things like vice and virtue who acted accordingly to what their names were, and at the end, vice would lose, virtue would win, you know, teaching the audience a lesson. And everyone would have been very familiar with these plays. They were pretty simplistic. And Shakespeare and his contemporaries all would have seen these types of plays growing up before they entered the theater scene. And I think we can also see this through line leading up to even kind of the boom in the Elizabethan theater scene. So Philip Sidney wrote a definition of tragedy in the 1580s, and he wrote that tragedies, quote, maketh kings fear to be tyrants, and tyrants manifest their tyrannical humors, that with stirring the affects of admiration and commiseration teacheth the uncertainty of this world, and upon how weak foundations gilded roofs are builded, end quote. What Sydney is saying, basically, is that tragedies show us you can't get too comfortable with your power or try to hold on to it too tightly because everything will, in fact, come crumbling down. Tyrants should fear because ultimately they're not going to be able to hold on to what they've achieved. This definition or explanation by Sydney ties really strongly to that medieval religious drama tradition. And it does feel applicable to some degree or for certain readings of Shakespearean tragedies. So, for example, if you're looking at Richard III, is this story immoral about a tyrant who tried to hold on too tightly to power and caused the death and miseries of others and then ultimately met his justified fate? In Macbeth, We've talked about that the title character kills to gain power and then quickly descends into paranoia, further killing on to hold on to his power, and then ultimately that causes his untimely demise. This approach to the tragedies is not wrong necessarily, but it is simplified. And if we think of the tragedy's purpose to be to teach us a lesson, we're kind of missing out on some of the other stuff 
going on there. But I think the tendency to look at the tragedies in this way leads us into other frameworks that help us neatly set them up and package them. So I want to lead that into another common framework that a lot of people apply to Shakespearean tragedies. You probably learned about this in high school and had to use it to apply to Shakespeare or other dramatic works in general. And what I am talking about here is Aristotle and his poetics. You might already know exactly what I'm talking about and be shuddering in fear about what I'm about to talk about, or you might have no clue what I'm saying. So let me get into this a little bit. Aristotle is ridiculously influential across a lot of different disciplines for a lot of reasons and not always in a good way. But for this particular case, we are talking about how he has crept into high school literature courses and college courses to some degree through this idea of the tragic flaw and also his prescription about what a tragedy is and the fact that when those tragedies end, people should be experiencing catharsis. Let's break this down. What is catharsis? You have probably heard this said at some point that at the end of the play, you are supposed to feel catharsis. Aristotle's definition of it is a little vague. He tries to boil it down that at the end, the audience is experiencing both pity and fear. Pity for the characters, fear that something like that could happen to them. He then tries to explain what kind of plots will arouse catharsis in an audience and what kind of plots will not. And his claim is that these these plots, he says, that don't evoke catharsis then are not a quote-unquote proper tragedy. So I just want to give you a quick rundown of some of the plots Aristotle says are not appropriate for a tragedy. Aristotle says, quote, It follows, therefore, that there are three forms of plot to be avoided. One, a good man must not be seen passing from happiness to misery, or two, a bad man from misery to happiness. The first situation is not fear-inspiring or piteous, but simply odious to us. The second is the most untragic that it can be. It has no one of the requisites of tragedy. And then he talks about some other stuff, and then he ends with his, his third no-no plot. He says, quote, An extremely bad man be seen falling from happiness into misery. Such a story may arouse the human feeling in us, but will not move us to either pity or fear. End quote. Aristotle has such a clear and specific idea in his mind of what makes a tragedy work, and his definitions and restrictions really don't apply to a modern-day conception of what tragedy is, and we can see that it doesn't really apply to what a 16th century expression of tragedy is either. I would say that Shakespeare's plays sometimes fall into all three of these no-no plots and also serve up further complication. Another aspect of Greek tragedy that we really like to try to apply to other dramatic works is this idea of the tragic flaw, which you might see in the original Greek as hamartia. You might have learned in high school that this idea is that a person who's usually in a position of power 
would have been able to escape their fate if only they didn't have this character trait that led them down the path to ruin. This character trait could be ambition or pride or some other things. It's it's honestly usually too much pride and an unwillingness to show humility before the gods in the Greek conception. There is an issue with this interpretation, though. Scholars have pointed out that Hamardia is more properly understood as an error in action rather than as a flaw in character. So this means that the protagonist screws up because they handle a situation badly, but not necessarily because it was baked into their character. Russ McDonald, who is the author of The Bedford Companion to Shakespeare, really likes this interpretation of a flaw in action because it does allow for more complexity in the characters and interpretation of the plays. Anyone can handle a situation badly, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they have some inherent trait in them where you can just point and say, ambition is to blame here. So with all of this background information, I now want to think about why taking this moral structure from religious medieval drama and this understanding of tragedy from Aristotle and the ancient Greeks might not work for what Shakespeare's tragedies are doing. And I will say, while I'm specifically looking at Shakespeare, this would also apply to other playwrights who are contemporary to him. First, let's think about Hamartia a little more. So this is a super nice approach for if you have to write a five-paragraph essay for your class or for your AP test but it doesn't really fully capture what's going on. So Macbeth is obviously ambitious. He and his wife are both taking actions to get more power, but there's a lot more going on in that play. And is it really enough to say that all of this was simply due to this tragic flaw of ambition? Hamlet definitely suffers from some degree due to a failure to act, but Is his tragic flaw really procrastination or ambivalence? I think that we have to accept the more psychologically complex elements at work here. So for Hamlet, as an example, if you were Hamlet and you saw the ghost of your dead father, would you actually believe that you saw his ghost or would you think that you had been hallucinating or that sleep or grief was messing with you? Would you really walk away from that interaction and immediately try to kill your uncle because a ghost told you that he did something bad? Maybe your uncle is not a nice person, and Claudius is definitely complicated, but I'm kind of more willing to cut Hamlet some slack for balking at the thought of murder. We see other moments, too, in the play where he is rash and quick to act. So think of the scene where Polonius is hiding behind that tapestry and Hamlet just stabs him through it because he thinks Claudius is the one hiding there. If Claudius had been the one hiding there, the play would have ended. Hamlet would have killed him without thinking. Uh, We can also think of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Hamlet sends his school friends off to be killed by someone else. So he is a really weird and complicated guy who's working through a lot of stuff. And I think we have to uh, take that interpretation of Hamlet beyond this guy just can't make up his mind. 
One of the ways we can see Shakespeare and other playwrights working through these complications is through the dramatic tool of the soliloquy. So for anyone who needs just a quick reminder or primer on soliloquy, this is a long speech that a character saying it while they are on the stage by themselves or talking to themselves where other characters are not listening to them. So sometimes the character might be seeming to talk or confide in the audience. Sometimes they're working through something on their own. But the key is that it's solo. This is a little tricky because we also have monologues, which are also long speeches spoken by one character. But the main difference here is that a monologue is said to another character on stage who is listening to them. So a couple quick examples here. If you're using Hamlet, uh, there's a scene at the beginning where Polonius is droning on and on about what Laertes needs to take with him on his travels, giving him all sorts of advice. That is a monologue. Hamlet, when he is delivering those famous to be or not to be lines, he is on the stage by himself going through it. That is a soliloquy. Or if you look at Romeo and Juliet, When Mercutio enters the scene for the first time and is just going on and on about Queen Mab to all of his friends, he is monologuing hard. (laughs) When Romeo spies Juliet after the party and starts talking to himself about how beautiful she is, that is soliloquy. So both the monologue and the soliloquy, again, take the form of a long speech, and the long speech is an absolute hallmark of any Shakespeare play. But I think it's important to point out that these speeches don't exist just because Shakespeare didn't have an editor or because actors wanted to say more lines. Reading for this episode, I realized that despite the fact I have analyzed multiple speeches and taken several Shakespeare classes, I somehow managed to miss the memo that soliloquies were an invention of Elizabethan playwrights and that Shakespeare himself had a hand in developing this tool. And the tool, at its core, is designed to help the audience see the inner workings of a character. So when you read a book, you can get inside their thoughts through the narration. The author can take you through the inner thoughts of just the lead character or through all of the characters in the book. In a play, you have what the characters say and how they act. So we have external cues on the stage. Soliloquies help try to make that internal complication more external so that we can get a better uh, idea of the psychological state of the character and why they are doing what they are doing. So it helps bring more realness and complexity onto the stage. And that is, I think, something that kind of goes directly in the face of this original framework of Hamartia, or at least its conception as a tragic flaw. Even if characters are acting completely wildly, with the soliloquy, we get that new layer to what is making them tick and what they are trying to do. I think this aspect can be overlooked With Hamlet, you will still get a lot of criticism of people saying, why did he not just kill his uncle earlier? Why did I have to read that entire play? (laughs) And I get that to some degree. But I think that 
Part of that criticism also stems from the fact that Shakespeare is messing with genre at the same time that he is delivering all this complication through soliloquy. So Hamlet is not only a tragedy, but it is a revenge play, which is a subcategory of tragedy, just like we have subcategories of comedy. And in a revenge play, you want to see someone take revenge in a super theatrical way. I mean, I think Count of Monte Cristo, even though it's a few hundred years removed from this, is a great example of a super fulfilling revenge story. I do not think Hamlet is a super fulfilling revenge story. Hamlet puts off revenge the whole play. He's trying to figure out if he needs to do it in the first place. And then when he finally decides he's going to do it, he screws everything up and like five people die in the final act, including himself. So I think this play is and Shakespeare are directly refusing to give us what we want. And that also makes people feel like, what the heck is he doing here? One final note about the Aristotelian approach to tragedy I did want to drop in here that Russ McDonald talked about in The Bedford Companion is that Aristotle's poetics were not widely read and known in the 16th century. So using this lens for an analysis of the plays is something that later generations have layered onto the plays. And as we've talked about, it's totally fair and valid to consider these works in a way that people at the time would have not considered them. But it's important to know if it is something that a contemporary audience would have been aware of or not. And in this case, the using this framework that Aristotle and the Greeks set up could potentially help us learn something about these plays or look at them from new and interesting angles. But we also want to be cautious to say that all playwrights were writing tragedies with Aristotle's rules in mind, because they simply were not. Now that I've been talking about tragedies for so long, I'm going to talk about tragedies a little more. (laughs) I want to talk about Shakespeare's own development of tragedy and how he kind of progressed through them a little bit. Part of what we looked at in the last episode was how Shakespeare approached comedy and that in general, at the beginning, his comedies were a little lighter and more farcical and they over time kind of became more complicated until they started turning into these romances and tragic comedies. I wanted to see the progression in his tragic works and if there's something we could kind of pull out there. One of the tricky things here is that chronology of Shakespeare's plays is sometimes a bit of guesswork. We know specifically when some plays were first performed or written, and other times we are just kind of taking some guesses. But if we kind of look at a guess to the chronology of Shakespeare's plays, his tragedies don't necessarily start on one theme and end on one theme, But we can see some groupings and themes that he started talking about in his early tragedies that sort of get developed into their final form in his later tragedies. So I want to talk for one second about his earliest tragedy, which is Titus Andronicus. And this play is mostly famous for being 
I think, his most violent play. Uh, For anyone who is unfamiliar with this play, there is a lot of killing in it. And one of the most famous deaths in the play is someone kills two guys, then they get chopped up, they get baked into a pie, and then that pie is fed to the murdered people's unsuspecting mother. Titus Andronicus gets set apart for for its violence and sometimes gets called out for its lack of subtlety just because there's so much of it on the stage. Shakespeare would never quite go to these extremes again, but we can see some of the seeds in this play that he did carry throughout his career. So first we have the villainous character of Aaron, who really delights in being a villain and talks to the audience and asides, and he really kind of is almost a prototype for Richard III or Iago in later plays. The setting of this play is in ancient Rome, and this is a setting and a context that Shakespeare would, would return to time and time again in later tragedies, including Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra. To a degree, Titus Andronicus is also a revenge tale, although it's much more straightforward than the complicated weirdness that we see with Hamlet. Shakespeare's plays that are set in this Roman context are sometimes called his classical plays and are honestly studied as a genre unto themselves, but I just simply did not have the energy (laughs) to split them apart at this point in time, so we will cover this in more detail later. But in these Roman plays, Michael Neal, who wrote the chapter on the tragedy plays in the New Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare, discussed a little bit the classical plays and one of these big overarching themes in them, which is the setup of civilization versus this threat of the outside barbaric chaos. The plays themselves, of course, aren't that straightforward. They go on to complicate the ideas of who is actually civilized, who is actually barbaric, and starts messing with that. But this kind of central idea of civil unrest looms large in all of these plays that kind of fits onto this classical understanding of societal upheaval. And we can also see civil unrest in some of his other tragedies as well, like in Romeo and Juliet, which is kind of interesting because where it's positioned in the chronology, it's obviously one of his most popular plays, but it is kind of a precursor to what we consider Shakespeare's most esteemed tragedies. And I think it's also kind of interesting because it's kind of set squarely in the middle of a bunch of comedies and he wasn't writing a bunch of tragedies on either side of Romeo and Juliet. And I don't know if that's a coincidence. I don't know if this leads to the sort of comedic nature of Romeo and Juliet or what was going on there. But it is kind of interesting that of all the tragedies, I think Romeo and Juliet has the most comic structure. The first couple acts of it are actually pretty funny and are almost a romantic comedy. And if Mercutio and Tybalt didn't actually die in Act 3 and set everything off on that tragic spiral, that play could end in happiness. Now, obviously, it starts out with telling you that it's going to end in tragedy. (laughs) But when I reread it recently, I was struck by the fact that the first two acts are 
basically a comedy. So that's really interesting. And while he would never quite go to that extreme again with his later tragedies, it is also definitely worth pointing out that every Shakespearean tragedy is going to have comedy in it. So like we talked about last week, even his lightest comedies have those threats of death and ruin. Even his heaviest tragedies have comic characters and situations. I think when we look at tragedies like Hamlet and King Lear and Othello, we like to pretend that because they are the peak of sophisticated drama, that they don't include anything so juvenile as off-color jokes, but they absolutely do. We have the gravedigger in Hamlet, we have the porter scene in Macbeth, we have the fool in King Lear, and King Lear is honestly one of his more depressing plays and has a funny character in it for multiple acts. So even at their most serious, these plays bring out this comic nature. And sometimes it's to help the protagonists be less self-serious, and I think sometimes it's to point out the absurdity in life. There, there are a lot of reasons for including that in these plays, but it's not quite fair to just say they're really sad and everyone dies because there is a lot going on there. So just like we had the quote-unquote problem plays in the comedies, we do have a couple plays that fall under this tragedy umbrella that do stand out as different than other tragedies. So we can think about Cymbeline, which I talked about last episode, is now put into the romance category. But in the first folio, it was listed as a tragedy. And that's really interesting considering that you have a couple deaths, but the title character doesn't die and it doesn't actually end in Death and Failure. So that one is a really interesting genre hopper. And it kind of, it really makes me want to talk to Hemings and Condal and find out why they thought Cymbeline was a tragedy and what their definition of a tragedy was. Because even if we used that really simple framework of everyone dies, which fits for almost all of them, why is Cymbeline included there? Another play that I also mentioned last episode, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about in this one is Troilus and Cressida. So again, that was left off the original catalog page, but based on its placement, we can see that it was intended to be included as a tragedy. And this one is also a little unusual because, again, the, t- the title characters, Troilus and Cressida, both survive the play. They end up apart from each other, so their relationship falls to pieces. Troilus does end the play disenchanted and embittered, but they are both alive and I guess arguably have learned some lessons. Hector is killed near the end of the play and a lot of other characters die because the backdrop is the Trojan War, but it's not done in that kind of classic tragic structure. Here is where I have to admit that I haven't actually read Troilus and Cressida. Uh, It doesn't get assigned in class that often and it gets performed even less. But based on the reading I've done surrounding the play, it looks like it includes tonal, strong tonal shifts and that the cynicism in it reaches really extreme levels. I have seen that some people have tried to perform it more as a 
black satiric comedy. It is, I guess, more tragic than comic. And then some people just don't know what is going on with this play. I stumbled across a reference to a Joyce Carol Oates essay, which talks about Troilus and Cressida, which blew my mind for a couple of reasons. But in this essay, she makes the argument that Troilus and Cressida is a tragedy, but it's one of the earliest examples of an existential tragedy, and that makes it feel more contemporary than early modern, or maybe helps explain why the early modern has that modern in it. So I just wanted to read a quick quote from um, Oates on this. Oates says, quote, what is so modern about the play is its existential insistence upon the complete inability of man to transcend his fate. Other tragic actors may rise above their predicaments as if by magic, and equally magical is the promise of a rejuvenation of their sick nations, Lear, Hamlet, etc. But the actors of Troilus and Cressida, varied and human as they are, remain for us italicized against their shabby, illusion-ridden world. I am now just beyond curious to learn more about this weird play that sends everyone into a tizzy, and I will definitely be covering that in the future. (laughs) So stay tuned. I think of all of the problem plays, it sounds like that is the biggest problem of them all. As with everything else I've covered so far in this episode and the previous, there's a lot more to say, but I have to leave it at that because I have been talking for a while and I have to dive into our last genre of play, which is kind of weird in that the name of it aptly describes its content, but offers us basically nothing about its tone. I am talking here about the English history plays. These plays are defined as histories in the first folio, but I like adding the qualifier that they're English history plays, because in my mind, otherwise, things start getting fuzzy again. Uh, Julius Caesar, which is listed as a tragedy, was written based on historical accounts of Plutarch. So in my mind, that could also be classified as a history. You can make the argument that Julius Caesar is a very dramatized version of Julius Caesar's life, and I think that's fair to say, but Richard III is also that, and so why is that a history and not a tragedy? It's because it centers around an English monarch. I think based on what is included in the histories here, the intent behind the categorization in the first folio is pretty clear. The history section is all of Shakespeare's plays, which were written about English monarchs, and those plays have been ordered from King John, who was the earliest king Shakespeare wrote about, all the way up to Henry VIII, who is practically a contemporary of Shakespeare's. This distinction from comedy and tragedy is interesting because the history plays themselves often have a tragic or comedic bent, either in tone or in structure. They're grouped together just because of who the title character is, basically. (laughs) One of the reasons this has been giving scholars pain is because the history plays themselves weren't always classified as history plays. So when we look at Richard III, which is um, one of the main examples people use 
that was originally billed as a tragedy when it was published during Shakespeare's lifetime. And if we look at that play and Richard III himself, you can see why he's the main character. He does find himself going from all powerful to completely powerless, you know, unable to even find a horse from someone before he's killed off. So that's a very tragic structure, and it makes sense to call it a tragedy in that regard. I just wanted to point out really quick, too, that that plot arc of Richard III would be something Aristotle would put in his no-no category, because it does feature a bad guy going from power to ruin, and would not, in Aristotle's view, cause the proper amount of catharsis in the audience. When we look at other history plays, however, particularly the Henry IV plays followed by Henry V, the three of these have this connected storyline that leads to a comic structure. So they start with young Prince Hal, who rises to prominence, he becomes King Henry V, and then he successfully wins his war against France and claims a French princess as his bride. We also have Falstaff in the Henry plays, and he is... I don't want to say Shakespeare's most beloved comic character, but definitely one of them. And as Ton Hunslar pointed out in his chapter on histories and the new Cambridge companion to Shakespeare, we can see this further complicated through a contemporary critic of Shakespeare who classified Henry IV as a tragedy. Why? I don't know. Up for him to say. I'll go look up his review one of these days. (laughs) I think that what I saw reading about the history plays is that they just cause all sorts of complications in how you classify them. And part of that depends on whether or not you like the king and what happened after his rule and during his rule, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that maybe Hemings and Condal just didn't want to have to deal with that issue. So they just put it into the history category and they're like, good, that was easy. One new choice we can see that Hemings and Condal did make for the history plays and the way they positioned them in the first folio is to create a uniform naming convention. And we still follow that today so that the titles of the plays are very dry. But they were not always that way. As an example here, in 1595, there was an Octavo printed of Henry VI Part Three, which is what we call it today. The title in 1595 was The True Tragedy of Richard Duke of York and the Death of Good King Henry VI with the whole contention between the two houses, Lancaster and York. In the first folio, they simplified that on the catalog page to just read the third part of King Henry VI. And today we usually call it Henry VI Part Three, or sometimes even Three Henry VI, which is so dry. (laughs) This naming convention definitely makes it easier to order and identify the plays and figure out, you know, who they're about and, and how to read them chronologically. But I think it can create a sense of austerity or uniformity of these plays that isn't really there. I did study a number of history plays in some of my Shakespeare classes And they usually weren't my favorite of his plays, but they are definitely not dry-ordered historical accounts. One of the reasons these plays might be kind of tonally messy or complicated 
And something that I find very interesting about them is that unlike tragedy and comedy, there was not a set definition or set of tropes and conventions for the histories because Shakespeare and his contemporaries were basically inventing the genre as they were writing the plays. First, I think it's important to point out that a lot of other playwrights at the time were also writing history plays. Some of them were writing plays about other kings. So a famous example here is Kit Marlowe's Edward II. And some of it meant that multiple people were writing plays all about the same guy. So apparently a bunch of people were writing Henry VIII plays and I guess doing different takes on him. In the Shakespeare in Love episode, I did talk a bit about how playwrights kind of copied each other and that if something did really well, uh, Shakespeare or another playwright might do their own take on it because a bunch of people went to see Richard III. Let me write a Richard III. And we can definitely see that going on at the time. And from Shakespeare himself, who saw a popular King John play and then wrote his own King John play. So when you consider the sources for the history plays, there is some historical nonfiction that informs them, but it's also other popular drama at the time, and then also just whatever the playwright wants to do to make the drama work. In this way, I think that history plays to some degree are kind of like our period pieces, where usually the overall structure is true, but a lot of things get condensed for the sake of a good story. Ton Hunselar, the scholar that I mentioned earlier, in his chapter on the history plays, I thought he made a really interesting point that while there were a lot of people writing history plays at the same time, we can see some distinct differences between Shakespeare's history plays and the other history plays being written. So Hanselar notes that Shakespeare's plays are largely focused on the monarchs and aristocrats themselves, and that the quote-unquote common folk rarely make it into his plays, or they're not the main focus of his plays. Shakespeare doesn't hold a light to their suffering or celebrate their victories. Hanselar says, quote, Even if we are charmed by Shakespeare's unparalleled artistry, we should not lose sight of the often implicit conservative political ideology of his plays and of his history plays in particular. I thought that was really helpful context because if you've never read the other history plays, you would never know if everyone's just basically doing the same thing. And now I have resigned myself to the fact that I'm going to have to read a bunch of other history plays. So <laughs> hello, future episode where I read four different Elizabethan plays about Henry VIII and figure out what they're all doing differently. Another school of thought surrounding the history plays that's a little newer is called New Historicism. And I found this also a really interesting framework. So whereas the traditional view of Shakespeare histories is that he's just kind of upholding what is going on at the time, the New Historicism kind of twists that. So Russ McDonald wrote in the Bedford Companion to Shakespeare that New Historicism argues that, quote, Shakespeare's plays did not merely reflect the hierarchical and oppressive views of his place and time, but that they actually helped to produce and sustain the dominant political theory. In other words, 
These critics see the plays not merely as effects of ideology, but as the creators of it. New historicism tries to look at the context of the time and how playwrights and people were grappling with political ideologies and how their own formation of thinking about these things are reflected in their plays, which in turn helped shape the discourse. One thing new historicism also points out that I really like is that we basically can never read an unbiased account of history in any form. No matter how much a historian tries to look at the record and present things in an unbiased way where you just have the facts, your own perspective is going to shape how you share that stuff. Shakespeare is obviously fictionalizing and dramatizing how he wants to, but even a historian looking at the actual historical record versus one of Shakespeare's plays and then trying to pull out what is going on there and why, that person is going to bring their own experiences and biases into it and the stuff they find is going to be different than the stuff somebody else finds. And this is honestly one of the reasons I love studying history in general is just because people are so complex and no matter what record you're studying, primary sources themselves are going to be biased, we're biased, and we're all just kind of creating stories and constructs. And coming at the history plays from this perspective, I think makes them feel a lot more new and interesting as opposed to just boring and stodgy. So I want to kind of take that mindset the next time I look at a history play and see if I can pull more out of it than I have in the past. Something else I want to talk about concerning the history plays is that they are generally described as more conservative in nature, which is probably fair, but that we can't go so far as to call them propaganda of the Tudor machine at the time. So even if Shakespeare is promoting a story with a history play, he introduces enough conflicting views in the different characters that there's enough nuance to keep them from purely pushing an ideal. And I want to think about that in context of the Tudors. Because when the Tudors first took power, their position was not as secure as they wanted it to be, I think. Henry VII had a claim to the throne, but he had overthrown a sitting monarch, and he had to then justify why he deserved to be monarch. And that led to the creation of something that's known as the Tudor myth, with a capital T and a capital M, talking about why the Tudors are basically destined for the throne. And so it's tempting to say, oh, playwrights would have been totally buying into the Tudor myth at the time because Elizabeth was the one sitting on the throne and they would have been wanting to get on her good side. But in the case of Shakespeare's plays, we can see that he's not really doing that. So I want to go back to Richard III as our example here. As I mentioned before, Richard is not really a good person, but he is a super, super entertaining character. He has all sorts of fun asides to the audience, and you kind of root for him even when he tells you that what he's doing is disingenuous. Uh, And as I mentioned, the play was originally billed as a tragedy because it ends in his death. But the interesting thing here is that Richard III was the monarch that Henry Tudor overthrew in order to become king. So if you are looking at this from a Tudor perspective... 
Henry VII was Elizabeth's grandfather. And if you were really wanting to get in good with Elizabeth, then you would think that you would want to write Henry Tudor into your play as this super noble, great dude who was going to make things better for England. And to some degree, that is kind of what happens at the end of Richard III. But because Richard III is such a good and compelling character, and Henry Tudor is not a good and compelling character, people see it as a tragedy. They're like, oh, bummer, Richard died. He was fun to watch. And like, yeah, okay, I guess Henry took the throne and now Elizabeth's our queen. But you're not walking away with this construct of, I want to watch plays about Henry VII. Another way that we can see Shakespeare kind of challenging or upsetting what we would think of as the history plays upholding the current political structure is through a play like Richard II. If you're not familiar, Richard II is about a king who is ultimately deposed. And a king losing power on stage is a pretty big deal in the time where monarchs are, you know, supposed to hold on to their power. And Richard II has been called out for a long time for kind of being politically daring in that way. And we have some evidence that at least some other people thought the same thing because Richard II itself was actually at the heart of a real historical incident where someone tried to use it in an inflammatory way to overthrow a monarch. And I just want to tell you this little bit of history because it's really interesting. So in February 1601, the Earl of Essex tried to lead an uprising against Queen Elizabeth. And as part of his kind of march on the capital, he commissioned Lord Chamberlain's men to put on a special production of Richard II. He was probably doing this because he wanted to use it to to incite people to rise up against the Queen with him. You show a king being deposed, people think, oh, that's like a parallel for Elizabeth being overthrown, they take to the streets. The rebellion absolutely failed. Essex did not succeed. He was executed for his part in trying to overthrow the queen. And I will say that the Lord Chamberlain's men, when I look at this, I don't know if Elizabeth was being nice, if someone had a really good defense, what was going on here, but they actually didn't get punished for their part in this whole thing. They were like, hey, we just got paid to put on this performance. We we didn't actually want to overthrow you. And Elizabeth was like, that's fine, I guess. <laughs> but Elizabeth totally got the parallels and the symbolism of this going on. So there is a recorded conversation from later in 1601 of someone who was talking to the queen. And Richard II came up and she said to this guy, quote, I am Richard II. Know ye not that? And then he tried to say, oh, the people who tried to do that to you were so terrible. And Queen Elizabeth then said, quote, he that will forget God will also forget his benefactor. This tragedy was played 40 times in open streets and houses, end quote. Essentially, Elizabeth here is recognizing what Essex was trying to do by comparing her to Richard II, but then kind of following it up by saying, this play has been performed dozens of times openly. No incidents were happening. The people who perform these plays know who their benefactor is. Like, Essex (laughs) did not consider the whole context. And I just love that. And 
I don't know if this that counts as Elizabeth throwing shade or not, but I really like this as an example of history plays, again, going beyond that stodgy and boring, showing how in some ways they could potentially critique or be considered dangerous by the dominant political structure, depending on what messaging they have going on there. So when it comes down to it, histories are just as complicated as tragedies and comedies and provide a lot of fodder for good discussion and interesting takes. And I think it's worth noting that even though they're set in a really you know, specific place and time on a really specific set of people who actually existed, depending on the political climate going on in different countries and current events, people have drawn really strong parallels between history plays and current events. And that has helped history plays at various points throughout time become really relevant and popular again. So just like with the romances and everything else I've discussed, everything's complicated and everything has the potential to again be relevant and embraced by a modern audience if it has that right connection and interpretation. And I mean, that's really what theater and art is about, right? Is drawing those connections across time and finding ways to connect to things all over again. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this long and winding journey. (laughs) I have to say at the end of it, I'm still reminded of trying to synthesize a particularly difficult school essay But I hope you had fun listening. I definitely had fun researching and learned a lot. And one of my biggest takeaways is I now have fodder for just years of future episode topics. If anyone knows, though, a wealthy, eccentric person who wants to foot the bill for the podcast so that I can produce them more quickly, then I can get through those ideas a lot faster and we can explore new things in the future. So just throwing that out there as a little potential idea for Christmas gift to me. (laughs) Going into the rest of the month, I do have a couple more things planned, including a really fun discussion I had with a friend on one of the more unhinged Shakespeare adaptations from the 1990s. I know that this podcast only launched in September, which was really not that long ago, and that I I don't think I've even hit episode 10 yet, but I have been spending probably the last six months getting this put together, and it honestly feels like I've been doing it for longer than that. I don't know if it's because I've learned so much in a short amount of time, but it's been a really fun, illuminating experience for me. And I just wanted to say thank you for everyone who's joined me so far. I really hope you're getting something as much out of this as I am. And if not, I guess at least I'm getting something out of it. So either way, (laughs) somebody's winning. As always, please feel free to reach out to me if you have any episode ideas, if you want me to cover any specific movies or books, if you want to join me for an episode. Uh, And you can get in contact with me in really in a few different ways. So you can find me at the podcast website, which is somethingshakespeare.com. And something that I've failed to mention in previous episodes is that I also have an email. So you can also drop me a note at somethingshakespearepod at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at somethingshakespearepod. I am trying to get better at checking DM requests. I realized recently that I've missed some messages people have sent me, and I'm really sorry about that. I am going to get better. (laughs) 
As always, the podcast art was designed and illustrated by the lovely and talented Haley Branson, and you can find her on Instagram at hbranana. The intro and outro music is performed by Joe's DVG on the lute, and it is an excerpt from the piece Midnight by Elizabethan composer John Dowland. I know that Andre 3000 just dropped a flute record, and I would just like to ask some other pop artist to please drop a lute record. With all of that said, when will we meet again? Sometime in the wind or rain? Maybe when the battle's lost or won? But regardless of the weather and the state of the battle, the next episode will drop squarely in the middle of the hurly-burly, because as we all know, the hurly-burly's never done. Bye!